This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. Today we revisit a topic that has changed American life as we know it. COVID-19. We have all been inundated with news about the coronavirus over the last several months, but it's worth taking a step back to assess the latest science behind the disease. The Star Tribune is lucky to have two Pulitzer Prize winning health reporters covering daily developments on this issue. I last spoke to Glenn Howard and Jeremy Olson in mid-March, and since then we've learned a lot about how COVID-19 is transmitted and treated. So today we're going to get an update about the disease and discuss what we should expect to see over the next several months. Jeremy and Glenn, thanks so much for joining us again. I really appreciate it. And so let's sort of go back in time for a minute here. Back in March, I was anxiously washing my hands every couple minutes. I had hand sanitizer and I was constantly using it. Maybe I'm not playing by the rules now, but I'm just back to a normal level of hand washing. But we are wearing masks and we weren't wearing masks back in March. So what do we know about the transmission and how it's transmitted now that we really didn't understand in March? Or am I just doing things differently? Well, we're all doing things differently as we've learned more, but I'd say concerns that there was surface transmission. You'd touch something, there'd be virus there, you'd touch your mouth. That doesn't seem to be the dominant mode of transmission of the SARS virus that causes COVID-19. It does seem to still be, as we had known at the start of this pandemic, that droplets get coughed. When you're speaking, you're talking, you're laughing, singing, droplets spread in the air, they travel a few feet, and they land on someone else in close proximity. That still is the dominant mode of transmission. There's more research looking now at risk of aerosolization of the virus, of it spreading in the air and kind of hanging in the air and landing on people farther away. The University of Minnesota has done some research on that. And they're even testing how the virus might spread in orchestra hall right now about how the virus could spread when people are playing their instruments to audience members. And so they're looking at, at that as a potential as well. But the mask wearing, I mean, mask wearing was always something to be considered. Health officials discouraged it a little bit early on because they were worried that people would go out and hoard all the masks, just like their toilet paper. And that the masks would then be not available for doctors and nurses. But once it was pretty clear there was a sustainable supply of alternative masks, you know, face shields, face uh, different kinds of garments, then they definitely got more aggressive with the mask wearing recommendations. And so that has changed over time, kind of for practical reasons as much as public health reasons. They've also come to understand that you can be infected with COVID-19 and not have symptoms. So you may be sick and you don't even know it. And that's something that they really didn't have an understanding of in the beginning of the pandemic, but this came about through some research they did, people who got sick on one of those cruises, many of the cruises, and they learned that people can spread it even without symptoms. Mm -hmm. And that presents a lot of problems in terms of controlling the virus because you may be a spreader and you're not aware of it. And hence why we want people to wear masks. Yes. Right. Okay. And so back then, we were also saying that most people who get this disease experience mild to moderate symptoms. Does that still hold true today? Yeah, the, the proportion that, you know, 80% of cases are mild to moderate still holds and that 20% of cases result in noticeable symptoms with a s- uh, smaller subset of that being severe symptoms requiring hospitalization. Looking at some data from our hospitals, those that have been hospitalized, it seems like 
fever, definitely respiratory symptoms, shortness of breath, and that, that dry cough you've heard so much about, those remain very common symptoms in, in some of the severe cases driving people into hospitals. Interestingly, people have always talked about loss of smell and loss of taste as a characteristic of COVID-19. At least in our cases, only about 5% to 6% of patients reported those symptoms. So that may be a hallmark in the public sense of what this COVID-19 is all about, but it's not the most common symptom by any stretch. And I've heard that people who do recover, in some cases, they, they sort of move forward with reduced lung capacity. I mean, what do we know about that? Because, you know, that's also a concern. Well, the Centers for Disease Control did a study about a month ago, a telephone survey of patients who had had COVID-19. And they looked, even amongst young people, 18 to 34-year-olds that had no prior medical conditions, these are people who probably would have less intense cases or less severe cases, one in five of them had reported that they hadn't returned to their usual state of health two to three weeks after their infections. So there are some lingering concerns, and often they were just trouble breathing. You can't exercise like you used to. You don't have the energy levels you used to. And some of those can be lingering in, in, in weeks and months. But even in mild cases, people were noticing that they're still not quite back to full strength a couple weeks later. Okay. So moving forward, I think a lot of us are wondering how long this current reality is going to go on for. And a lot of that depends on the vaccine. So what do we know about the progress in developing a vaccine? And what should we sort of expect as a conceptual timeline for when we might start to see that roll out? There are a number of vaccines in development, and some of them have gone into trials. It's always hard to know exactly when the vaccine will be ready for prime time, but Dr. Anthony Fauci has said possibly by the end of the year, early next year. But vaccine development is one thing. The, the bigger issue is making the vaccine and then distributing it. And Minnesota is one of four states that's working with the CDC on developing guidelines for this. And most likely, they'll prioritize healthcare workers, people who are most vulnerable to the disease, like the elderly, as a way of rolling out the vaccine. But these things don't have a defined beginning, middle, and end. So it's hard to plan your life right now around when the vaccine will be available. It's, mm -hmm. it's too early to tell. And, you know, with the flu vaccine, the effectiveness of it is different every year, depending on the evolution of the flu. Do we expect it would be the same with this or is it a little bit different? Well, with flu, it's a guessing game every year because influenza, the, the strains change, and every year health officials are trying to keep up and match the vaccine to the strains that are spreading around the globe. Sometimes they do better than others. With SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, there seems to be more stability and more predictions that once you develop a vaccine, it's going to be effective for the long term, that there may not be quite as much of a shift in the virus. Some of this came from SARS-CoV-1, that the SARS epidemic more than a decade ago, understanding of that coronavirus is feeding some of today's knowledge about COVID-19. And how are we treating this differently than we were back in March? I mean, has the medical community gotten a better understanding of how to get patients healthy again? Well, we really only have a couple proven medications. But when you start from a position of having zero, a couple is a good thing. Dexamethasone is a steroid that's been proven in severe COVID hospitalized cases to mitigate the immune system from overreacting to the infection. Oftentimes, it's that immune system reaction that, that is fatal in severe COVID-19 cases. We also have remdesivir. It's an antiviral drug, usually also in hospital situations. And it seems to have the ability to slow down the replication rate of the virus. So we have 
have those tools available to us for more severe cases. Obviously, everyone's heard about hydroxychloroquine and the hope that it would prevent people from suffering symptoms after exposed to the virus. The University of Minnesota did some of the world's first placebo-controlled double-blinded trials on that and found that it really didn't work for that purpose. So that was a bit of a disappointment. But beyond that, doctors are just getting better at treating hospitalized cases. They know when to intervene with oxygen and when to do different things in a more timely fashion for patients. And that's helping in recovery rates and reducing mortality rates a bit as well. And it's important to note that they're not using something that everybody thought was critical in the beginning, and that's ventilators, because they've learned how to manage the patients so that they don't get sick that they need a ventilator. Because once you get on a ventilator, it's hard to get off. But it's just interesting to note that we spent a lot of time talking about ventilator supply, and nowadays nobody even mentions it. Because we're not needing them as much because the interventions beforehand are working more effectively. Right. Got it. Interesting. So Glenn, tell us about what contact tracing is. This is a word that maybe outside of the public health circles was not widely known until recently, but now it's something that is going to be a big part of how we combat this going forward. What, what is that? And is it working? Well, it's a standard public health tool and it's pretty simple. You have a case of somebody who has a disease and they're infectious. So you interview them and you ask them all sorts of questions about where they've been and who they've been spending a lot of time with. And typically it's going to be family members, co-workers, but it could be all sorts of situations. So basically you take these names of close contacts and then you call them up and you ask them questions about how they're feeling and where they've been. And if it appears that they could have been exposed, you ask them to self-quarantine, even if they don't feel sick. It's just a way of heading off the virus before it passes to somebody else. The problem with COVID is, as I mentioned earlier, the, the asymptomatic transmission is a problem in contact tracing because people don't remember stuff if they don't feel sick. But also, COVID is so widespread, it's difficult to control through contact tracing, you know, as opposed to like a small outbreak of, of measles that happened here in 2017. But nearly a quarter of all the cases that we have in Minnesota, the public health investigators can't really figure out how they got exposed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I might add that at the start of the pandemic, they initiated contact tracing from the day you had symptoms onward. They started asking, as soon as you got symptoms, who were you around, who were you close to that you might have exposed to the virus? Once they realized how this virus actually works and how people can be asymptomatic, now they're asking people to go back 48 hours before their symptoms and say, who were you around then, realizing that you're actually infectious before the symptoms pop up. Okay, got it. So normally toward the end of the year, you two would be writing stories, at least some stories about the flu ramping up and flu season. What's it going to look like to have both of these things happening at the same time as flu season ramps up and we're still in the middle of a pandemic? Is that going to be like a double whammy potentially? Well, many people do see this as a nightmare scenario, but there's a couple things to consider. One is every season of influenza is 
different. You have some years with lots and lots of cases and some with not as many. But in many seasons, flu does put strain on the healthcare system because some people, especially the elderly, need to be hospitalized. So if right now we're running about 300 hospitalizations a day from COVID, if you add more on top of that, it could create a capacity problem. Although many of the hospitals have ramped up the number of beds that they have due to COVID. Okay. And so lastly, I mean, I've just been thinking a lot about winter lately, maybe just because it's that time of year where the summer is starting to wind down. But, you know, we're really taking for granted at this point that we can go to patios outdoors and have social gatherings outdoors and, and all of these things. What kind of headspace should we start to get in now about what winter might look like, given that, you know, I imagine that we're all going to have to be indoors and the socializing will probably have to be somewhat minimal. And then what do we do with the holidays, for example? I mean, can you just kind of give us a preview from, from an expert about what kind of preparations are you making in your head about what this winter might look like? Well, I can say first off that health officials are worried about that because COVID cases really picked up in the South in the summer with the theory being that the heat drove people inside. And it, it's pretty clear that indoor transmission is much more of a risk than outdoor transmission for the virus that causes COVID. So then you flip that to the winter and there's concern the same will happen in the North. The cold will drive people inside and there will be more risk for transmission and a wave of cases in the north. So there's reason to be concerned. And I guess the other issue is the public health strategies that have been ingrained in us, washing our hands, using face masks and social distancing, staying six feet away from people to prevent those droplets that you cough or or sneeze from landing on others. Will those be ingrained in us come the winter or will we be so tired of them and frustrated that we stop doing them? If we maintain those habits, even in an indoor setting, you know, where mask wearing and social distancing, Think that it can be protective. But if we're worn down from the pandemic and we're not doing those things anymore, that could accelerate that wintertime risk. Do you expect that people are going to be going home for the holidays and all these types of things? I mean, should we be preparing that that's not going to happen <laughs> in all likelihood? I'm asking for well, myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be a difficult decision for a lot of people because it's not just the gathering itself. It's how do you get there? And do you want to fly? And are some of the airlines still going to keep the middle seat empty? So that's one thing to consider. You know, typically with the flu, we do see a spike in cases after Thanksgiving and Christmas as people mix. So I'm sure there'll be plenty of articles written in the New York Times about this dilemma. Well, we'll have that to look forward to. <laughs> um, a, very Zoom, a very Zoom Christmas. Yeah, Zoom. <laughs> very Zoom, exactly. But one thing is wearing a mask outdoors in the winter is going to be more pleasant than the summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Jeremy and Glenn, thank you so much for coming on. Again, I feel like there was a lot that we needed to revisit from that conversation in March just because we've been living with this for so many months now and things have changed. So thanks so much for keeping us updated and writing all the stories that you have to sort of keep the public informed about how this has been evolving. Thank you. Yeah, happy to talk. Before we go, I want to make a correction to something I said on our last show about wastewater. I said that wastewater pipes are corroded by hydrogen dioxide. Thankfully, some listeners reminded me that the chemical is actually hydrogen sulfide. Sorry about the error on that. If you're listening and have a question for us, please record it on your smartphone and send it to curious at startribune.com. Frankly, I'd love to do another listener lightning round show like we did several months ago, but I need your audio questions to make it happen. So please send them in. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our show is recorded at the Star Tribune's headquarters in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. And our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious.